John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the entrance. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord away from the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Then Peter and the other disciple left and went to the tomb. The two of them were running, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and saw the linen cloth, but did not go in. Behind him came Simon Peter, and he went straight into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the cloth which had been round Jesus' head. It was not lying with the linen cloth, but was rolled up by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand the scripture which said that he must rise from death. Then the disciples went back home. Mary stood crying outside the tomb. Still crying, she bent over and looked in the tomb and saw two angels there, dressed in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. Woman, why are you crying? They asked her. She answered, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. When she had said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who is it that you are looking for? She thought he was the gardener. So she said to him, If you took him away, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and said in Hebrew, Rabboni. This means teacher. Do not hold on to me, Jesus told her, because I have not yet gone back up to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them for me, I go up to him who is my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had told her this. It was late that Sunday evening, and the disciples were gathered together behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Then Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. After saying this, he showed them his hands and his sides. The disciples were filled with joy at seeing the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And as the Father sent me, so send I you. He said this, then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. <clears throat> In 
1966, it was a great privilege for me to attend the World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin. It was held in a great hall there that was just within a few yards of the old Reichstag that had been created by Adolf Hitler. If you looked at that old headquarters building of Hitler's, you could still see the pockmarks of shells and bullets that had crashed into it and the black burn stains that remain. One kind of evil is represented in Hitlerism in the war there. Within just a few other yards you could look and you could see that towering high gray wall topped off with barbed wire where the communists had rolled out big stone walls and barbed wire to build a cage to keep their people in. And when you went through that wall, you could just keep on going for thousands and thousands of miles, and you find no real freedom of religion at all. The disciples, on that first Easter evening, were gathered together, huddled in fear, bolted and barred into an upper room, and suddenly there came into their midst Jesus. He spoke to them, and the words which he said to them were peace. Peace be unto you, he said to them. He was seeking to quell their fears. He was seeking to assure them of who he was and what had been accomplished through his resurrection from the dead. St. Luke, in his parallel account of Jesus' visit to those disciples huddled in that upper room, tells us how Jesus reached out his hands and said, look at these wounds. How he said, look at my side. How he took a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb and ate it to prove to them that he was no apparition, that he was no phantom, that he was no ghost, but that he was real and that he is alive. This he did in order that they might know that the faith which they were to proclaim before a hostile world was founded upon fact, not fable, but fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Upon this great fact, the Christian church rises or it falls. Either we are a pack of fools assembled to discuss fairy tales, or Jesus rose from the dead. The scriptures teach us that he did rise from the dead, and he demonstrated it in the most powerful manner there in the upper room on that evening. H.L. Mencken was no Christian, but H.L. Mencken was a literary giant of his time. He could write in a penetrating, honest, clear, candid way. And H.L. Mencken said very simply, Either Jesus Christ rose from the dead, or he did not rise from the dead. If he did rise from the dead, Christianity is plausible. If he did not, Christianity is nonsense. I agree with H.L. Mencken. Well, there that night in the upper room, Jesus appeared to these ten, and probably the two who had walked that afternoon on the road to Emmaus joined them. He demonstrated the reality of his resurrection to them, and he explained certain passages of Scripture to them. We find in Luke's account that he went through the Old Testament, talking to them about those prophecies which had been made concerning the Messiah, 
interpreting to them the Psalms, teaching them how the Messiah must indeed suffer and die and be raised again the third day, and that by that death in some mysterious fashion, God has gotten for those who trust in that death the forgiveness of sins. This is the faith of the earliest Christians. This is what they believed. And so Jesus demonstrated that reality that night. Today, Jesus has promised that he would be wherever two or three are met together in his name. He is here this morning. He is here. He is here. He is more real than I am real. And the eye of faith knows that he is here. The heart of faith knows that he is here. For he has promised that he would be with us. Now, I may not be able to see him with these eyes. I may not be able to see him with these eyes. But there are eyes in my heart. And I can sense and feel his presence here this day in keeping with what he has promised. I've often wondered just what would happen to an Easter Sunday congregation if suddenly the doors opened and down the aisle of the church there came footfalls and people all turned around and looked and suddenly Jesus would be standing there. Wonder what would happen. Wonder what would happen in churches if this took place. Well, Jesus sought to teach those disciples that night in that upper room on that first Easter Sunday. Blessed are those, he said, who have not seen and yet who believe. He is teaching them a new way of his presence. He is clarifying their faith by, first of all, asserting the reality of his resurrection, which he proclaims. Now, I grant you, if you read the magazines and the newspapers today, you're no longer shocked by what people in the clergy may say about the resurrection of Jesus. If you saw last week's copy of Newsweek magazine, you will see distinguished theological professors who assert that they do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Dr. Nelson Bell is also quoted in last week's Newsweek as asking a great question, where will you spend eternity? And expressing his dismay that this question is so little asked by preachers today from many pulpits. There's one thing for dead sure. You won't spend eternity reading theological textbooks. What difference does it make, this resurrection of Jesus? It makes the difference of whether our faith is real or unreal. That's the difference that it makes. He appeared that night to clarify. He wanted to clarify some facts about himself. The fact he sought to clarify was that the Son of God was to be a suffering Savior whose death was to be for our sins. On Thursday evening, we met here around the communion table. And we took up those little elements, the cup and the piece of bread, and we took these things to defend ourselves against sin and to comfort us in the reality of the fact that our sins are taken away through the sacrifice which Christ has wrought for us. These are sensible, tangible signs by which this faith is meant to be made real to our minds and hearts. Does man need this faith today? Does modern man, haunted by his sense of guilt, lying upon the psychiatrist's couch, babbling out his soul, seeking somewhere to find forgiveness for his sins? God does not forgive excuses. God forgives sins. 
And they are forgiven through the Savior and through the sacrifice which he has made for our sins. That night in the upper room, he brought them a message of peace. He brought them a message of peace and he gave them an assignment. He told them that as the Father had sent him into the world, to be the communicator of the Father's love, the medium himself was the message. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld him full of grace and truth, John is to write later on. This Jesus is teaching them that there. And the church is to have a word of authority. Not I hope so, or I think so, or maybe there will be a resurrection, or maybe there is a forgiveness of sins, or maybe there is a heaven, or maybe there is a hell. I heard about a preacher in Charlotte not long ago who admonished his congregation in a courageous manner by saying, if you people don't change your way of living, you're going to go to a place that it's so bad I can't mention it from the pulpit. Well, there are a lot of phony preachers just like that. But the ring of the New Testament is one of authority and transcendence. And this is the greatest need of the church today to recover its authority, to go find its keys, the keys of the kingdom. For that's what he is talking about when he says he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit they have a prelude to Pentecost here. And he says to them, if you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Is sin real? When I walked the Congress Hall in Berlin and stared at the old Reichstag and looked at the gray granite walls that had been erected and the barbed wire that was there, sin looked real. Sin is real. And it's to be dealt with. And the way in which the church, which is the body of believers, is to deal with it is by preaching the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That there is forgiveness through the good news which Jesus has brought. And how does that good news work? Go back a little that afternoon. Late that afternoon, according to St. Luke, the Lord had appeared to Simon Peter. And what a mess Peter was. Of all the sad people in Jerusalem, there could have been no sadder person than Peter. The boisterous fisherman, the one who had boasted in the upper room that though everyone else might deny the Lord, he would never deny him. He was ready to go with him to prison and even to death. And yet before that night was out, Peter did deny him. He denied him repeatedly. He denied him with oaths and curses. And then Jesus, having been led from the high priest's quarters, turned and looked upon Peter. And the big fisherman burst into tears and ran out into the darkness weeping. And I have often thought that had it not been for John or some other going to Peter, we would have had another Judas on our hands. I suppose that Peter went out in that dark night sobbing his heart out, seeing how weak and frail he really was. And he needed the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. He needed the key that would unlock the door of his heart and show him that though he had tried and failed, that with Jesus there was forgiveness of his sin. And with him there was newness of life. And with him there could be a new boulder more courageous, more straightforward, more dependable Simon Peter.
resurrected from that shell of a cowering man that night. And so it was true. Jesus had a special message for Peter, and he had revealed himself to him that day, telling him of his reality. And after those whole 40 days had passed in that wondrous time after his resurrection, there never was a bolder preacher of the gospel than Peter himself. He could stand up and shout it into the teeth of the Sanhedrin that this Jesus, whom you took and nailed on a cross, God has raised from the dead. And when they demanded that he no longer preach in that name, Peter could boldly look into their face and tell them that they would obey God rather than men. This is a note of authority built upon the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then look a little further into the afternoon. You see a man whose name is Cleophas and an unnamed companion walking with him some seven or eight miles from Jerusalem on a road to Emmaus that first Easter afternoon. They too have been disillusioned. Disillusioned by what had happened to the one in whom they had believed. For they were looking for some type of temporal, earthly, powerful authority that he would create over the Jews and the Romans there. And yet Jesus had not worked things the way they wanted it, but he had gone to the cross and died. And their faith had been shattered to pieces, and in their sadness, as they walked along, bewildered by all that they had heard that mysterious day, a strange presence came and joined himself to the two of them as they walked along. He said, what is this that you're talking about while you walk along and you're so sad? And one of them was scarcely civil to Jesus. He looked to him and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened there? And then he began to relate that story of how the priests had taken Jesus and crucified him. And they said, but we had trusted that it had been he who was to deliver Israel. And then we are told that once again Jesus goes into the scriptures and he finds from the scriptures the authority for what he has done and what has taken place in Jerusalem. And you know the rest of the story. How that they bade him to come in with them that night and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread and how they rushed to join that assembly in the upper room. And their grand words of how their hearts were on fire while he walked with them in the way and while he opened unto them the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is the message of the love of God. And the message of the love of God is the message of the forgiveness of sins. And the message of the forgiveness of sins is the gospel of the kingdom. Then came Jesus to ten befuddled men and showed them the reality of his resurrection and the assurance of forgiveness and clarified their faith. Then came Jesus to a man by the name of Peter who had tried and failed and brought to him new and bold power. Then came Jesus to two on the road to Emmaus and clarified for them the meaning of faith. And their hearts burned within them as they walked with him in the way and while he opened unto them the scriptures. Is church just a big bore? 
Or can you come into a place where you have the hymns sung and the praises of God there and you are in the Spirit on the Lord's day? And you can read the Word of God and see God at work in the pages of His Word. And you can make the application to your own heart. And you can put that application into work day by day in your daily life. If you can, then you can know the experience of those two on that Emmaus road. And then back to the very earliest part of the day. To this remarkable scene that we read a moment ago about Mary. Mary of Magdala. Mark is careful to tell us out of whom he cast seven devils. Mary of Magdala, whom tradition has always associated as a sensual, sinful, wicked woman. Mary of Magdala, a squalid, sordid Arab town noted for its harlotry. Mary of Magdala who had been transformed. I don't know where Mary of Magdala heard Jesus preach. But I know that one day when she heard him preach, that the keys of the kingdom unopened the door. And I know that Mary of Magdala had her sins all fall away. And she became a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus who really put to shame his own sturdy men disciples. For in that night they forsook him and fled. But Mary of Magdala and certain other women went all the way with him to the cross. And they wept for him. And they loved him. And this one who had been given a new life because of him. Had found her way early that morning before it was ever daylight to the tomb, weeping when she considered all that had happened. Her mind boggled, her imagination staggered, her heart crushed, her hopes dashed. She wept. I heard a man who suffered much for Jesus in communist, in communist Romania say that the communist once put a strong light upon him and they screamed into his ears God is dead 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 and he said I was amazed when I came to America and found the theologians saying the same thing and you know what this man said and he bore in his body the marks of his suffering I sat with him at table one night I remember him requesting the host in the home where we stayed to give him some fruit to put by his bed. He said, I still wake up in the night screaming in hunger. Fourteen years in prison. Two years in solitary confinement where he never saw the light of the sun, where he never saw the blue of the sky, where he never saw the green grass. The only voice he ever heard was the voice of his interrogator coming to torture him and to destroy his faith. You know what this man said about the God is dead stuff? He said, if your God is dead, do what Mary of Magdala did. Go back to his tomb and weep until he comes to life again. This is what Mary did. She went and wept. She went and wept and 
You know the story. You know that while she was weeping there, she saw angels. Now people are bothered because one gospel says one angel, another says two. There were probably millions of angels. Who knows? Who knows? These are not discrepancies that make for any serious question of the resurrection of Jesus. I have back in my study back here thousands of pages in that whole Warren Commission report of the assassination of John Kennedy. And with all of the electronics media that we possess and all of the sophisticated ways of determining what took place, we still don't know what happened. John Connolly still doesn't know whether he heard two shots or three shots or one shot. But no one doubts what happened. Well, here, that day in this tremendous event, Mary saw an angel, and the angel had spoken to her. She was looking at the tomb. And then in what surely must be one of the greatest recognition scenes in all of the history of the written word, a voice speaks from behind her saying, why are you weeping? And she turned, and because her eyes were full of tears, she could not see. She thought he was the gardener. Wrong suppositions about Jesus. She thought he was a gardener. She said, sir, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and take him away. She didn't consider her heart so full of grief, she wanted to go and take up the body of Jesus. And then Jesus said to her one word, and I've often thought, if by some miracle of scientific technology you could recapture from the waves of the air sounds that had been uttered, I would love to hear the way in which Jesus simply said the word, Mary. He had said he called his own sheep by name. And here he says the word, Mary. And he recognized, she recognized his voice. And she fell down at his feet and clutched his feet and said, Rabboni my master, my master. On Easter, can you catch hold of Jesus and say with Mary, my master, my master, who has delivered me from the power of sin and the fear of hell, who has brought to me a real and living faith, Oh, in that moment, a thousand years of sheer joy were packed into a second as Mary heard him call her by name. He said, go to these disciples of mine. My brothers, he says, and tell them for me, I go back up to him who is my father and your father and my God and your God. This is the Jesus of the Gospels who is risen for us. Someone says it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. You know why? It's hard to obey. That's why it's hard to believe. That's why if you've got, a, 
if you've got a dead, rotted Jesus whose bones you think are in some tomb, you've got to have a new morality. It's hard to believe because it's hard to obey. We don't want to admit that this is real because of the consequences it would make in our own life. It would mean we would have the responsibility of those keys of the kingdom and to really get that message out all over the world. It would mean that we would have the responsibility of living for that risen Christ day after day and showing his love even when we didn't want to. It's hard to believe because it's hard to obey. But the fact is there and it's real. The early church didn't create the story of the resurrection. The resurrection created the story of the early church. I can say with John Updike, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse and the molecules re-knit and the animal acids rekindled, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths of fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, and decayed, then regathered out of his father's might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor analogy sidestepping transcendence making of the event a parable a sign pointed in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, non papier mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. Faith in a risen Lord let us bow in prayer. Father, how wonderful it would be today if for some who have never yet believed that Jesus rose from the dead, if today they would believe, Help them to know the grand promise which you have made for us, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God hath raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Help us to know the reality of that faith, knowing the reality of it to translate it into work day by day. Forgive us where we have fallen short, and lead us to higher ground in our devotion to him, our risen and conquering Lord. In his name, amen.